Okay, everybody, welcome back to Who's Your Band? Uh, I am doing this solo today. Sean's away for the holidays. Uh, I'm also going to do a shout out to DeVito Fitness. DeVito Fitness is sending over uh, some swag for us, you know, big fans of the show. And uh, they do a great job. So thank you guys over at DeVito Fitness. We appreciate it. Um, we appreciate the guys from, uh, what was it, Sons of uh, Silver. Uh, they sent over some stuff. So, you know, Guys, keep supporting that band. They are great. And today, we it's the day before Thanksgiving, and I'm excited because I get to introduce and interview a guy who I'm a fan of, man. I love this guy. He is uh, an actor. You Maybe you've seen him on uh, HBO's Vinyl. He is a headlining comedian. Please welcome Chris Monty. How are you, Chris? Thank you for having me, man. How you doing? I'm good. Thank you for doing the show. Um, yeah, we were just talking like just before. Uh, you're a guy who's always interested me. And I think, <laughs> you know what I think it is about you? It's your style. You you stand out. You have a style. And let me, let me start. Let's, this is going to get weird. Uh, this, is how, this is how I was exposed to Chris Monty. Um, I live on Staten Island, and I am a member of the St. George Theater. And one of my favorite comedian of all time was Joan Rivers. So for, for a birthday gift, someone sent me over tickets to see Joan Rivers at the St. George Theater. And who opened up the show? The one and only Chris Monty. And it is not an easy place to play. And Chris, you killed it. Oh, thank you. That was fun. I did actually, uh, I think it was, what was that? That was maybe a couple years ago. Um, yeah. I think it was 2013. Um, I met Joan at a, I did a show in, in in Connecticut, and and an agent booked me to open for her. And ever since then, anytime she was in the Northeast, she called me to open for her. So uh, that was really cool relationship. She was really really cool. Um, and that theater is just amazing. They've they've uh, remodeled it to look like it looked when it opened. It's a beautiful theater, and um, it was that was so much fun. That was a great crowd, and um, and yeah, it was just you know I, I didn't even realize you were at that show. That's that that brings back memories that you say that now. Yeah, I mean the theater. You're right. It, it's a nostalgic theater. Uh, they put a lot of money into it. I, I you it, from the outside now you wouldn't recognize it. They put this right. new uh, marquee. It's it's beautiful, but. I wanted to ask you, what was Joan like? I mean, you got to know her. You you got to talk with her. I mean, you're talking about a Mount Rushmore type of talent. What what was what, what was your experience with Joan? Ultimate professional. Um, if you were working on her show, you had to be there. Let's see, the show would usually go off at eight. I had to be there before six, between five thirty and six. <laughs> she would do a dress rehearsal, quick run through. She always had a band, you know, open up for her and, and play her on and everything. Um, she would have the entire staff that works for the theater, from the ticket takers to the concessions to the ushers, everybody in there watching what she was doing. And she would orchestrate everything that was going to happen that night. This is going to happen here. This is going to happen there. And she wanted everybody to be on the same page. Really professional, really down to earth, not, um, you know, the character on stage was obviously her stage character, but off stage. Just down to earth, uh, salt of the earth person. You know, really, really cool and funny. Really funny. You know what I thought was a thing that kind of stood out, which was an icebreaker for you, was she introed you from the wings uh, right. to bring you on stage. So you heard her voice, and it was a funny intro. I, I'll never forget. We it. rehearsed that too. She rehearses that like when we're on stage. She wants the band to play me on and the band to play me off. And as the band's playing me off, she's coming on. So, uh, and you could say the intro, if you remember the introduction, I'll let you say it. But uh, we, we, she would always tell me, go up there and do your last minute. And I would say, my last minute. She goes, the last minute you're going to do, just do it. And I would have to do it. And then she would tell the band, as soon as he says that punchline, he's going to say, thank you, good night. And bam, the band hits it and play him off big. And then she would, you know, make me do, if you remember, I don't know if you remember what the, she would the make. The intro was, um, we got this guy, something along the lines, we got this guy because he's willing to take the pay, something like that. Or the, yeah, she the, says, the, uh, uh, she's, and it's an old joke. She says, uh, give it up for, uh, you know, Chris Monty, uh, who, ladies and gentlemen, is not the funniest comedian in the business, but he's the funniest comedian in his price range. That's it. That was a good, <laughs> right, right. Which I thought was great. And, you know, again, it's Joan's audience. It's Staten Island. But you know what? You're geared for Staten Island. You really are. 
Um, I work at Staten Island a lot. I work actually at the famous Staten, Legretti's. Uh, I do a lot of uh, performances for, I'm good friends with Jack, the owner, and uh, great mm. food, by the way. And uh, they have a lot of events for like seniors, and they have a lot of afternoon shows that functions that go on. And Jack always will uh, call me in to, uh, to perform there. I've actually performed at his, uh, he does, a, he has like a men's club, and they have like a Christmas party every year, lobster and steak dinner. And uh, he always calls me in to perform on that. So Those are the best, right? Oh, those are the best. You eat steak, lobster, and then you drink for free, and then I tell jokes for 40 minutes. Doesn't get better than that. But um, let, let's talk about you a little bit now. Um, who were some of your early influences in in, uh, in comedy? Because I, I said that the thing that attracted me about you is your, your, you have a style that I think stands out from almost every other comic that I've seen and know. So I have a feeling some of your early influences may kind of affect that. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely, my first, my very first influence, the, the man who I watched that I wanted to become a comedian when I was a little boy with my parents was Red Skelton. Oh, I remember Red, Red Skelton. Yeah, yeah, of oh. course. So now when we were kids, I don't know if you're in my age group, but I presume we're close, right? I'm 27. So I'm 29. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so. I mean, COVID has just kicked the shit out of me, you know, but yeah, but I'm, 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 a, you I'm a 27. You have COVID? <laughs> no, I don't. Oh, thank God. <laughs> it's thank the God. COVID, it's the quarantine, it's all that shit. Right. It's, yeah. Although, I mean, before this, I was, I was very handsome. I would, I look like George Clooney and this yeah, is but what, you look like you haven't had sunlight in about nine months. So that's okay. So, uh, but yeah, Red Skelton as a kid. And then uh, of course, Johnny Carson, uh, I used to beg my mother to let me stay up and watch the monologues. Um, Ralph Cramden, you know, Jackie Gleason. Of course. I watched Abbott and Costello and Laurel and Hardy and Jack Benny and George Burns and everybody in that old school frame. And then as a young teenager, I really got hooked on, um, you know, Carlin, Pryor, you know, uh, Bill Cosby was one of my heroes, although now it's taboo to say his name, but he was one of my heroes as a kid. Um, Great storyteller. You know, great storyteller and um, and clean, you know, and all those guys, you know, and up until now, I still love comedy. I still love Ray Romano and Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle and everybody current. You know, I just love comedy all around. I'm a big fan. Now, you because you to me give off a 1960s vibe. So when I ask, cool, cool, when maybe I, what's that? Cuckoo, baby. I'm yeah. a big Sinatra Rat Pack guy. I, we're we're going to talk about Sinatra, yeah. okay? And let me tell you something. Your musical choices uh, was very interesting. You made me spend a lot of time down a wormhole, which we'll get to. But again, <laughs> I want to get to know you a little bit better. Um, when we were talking about influences, I thought you were going to go more with like Joey Bishop. I thought you were going to go maybe more with uh, uh, Don Rickles. Um, but Th those what? are included. I mean, like definitely Rickles. I see, I've seen Rickles uh, before he passed away, obviously. I've seen him uh, live quite a few times. Rickles, I would lump into that group of guys that that are, are in my – not as much Joey Bishop, I, I think. I, you know, Joey Bishop was good, but I never one of my favorites. Uh, I, I would take Rickles over Bishop any day. I think if we could put you in a time machine and said, hey, Chris, you can go to any area you want. I think you would have picked Vegas in the 1960s. Am I right? I would pick probably Vegas between like 57 and like 65, you know, because you get to, uh, you know, you got all the big acts still playing. You still got Louis Armstrong playing there. You still got all the big older, older acts playing. So you get to see the best of jazz and then you get to see the best comedians. You know, you have, you know, like you said, you, you have, uh, uh, big, you know, the beginning of um, of some guys that became bigger later on, you know, the very beginning of George Carlin when he was he was in a comedy team, people don't realize. That's you know? right. And um, and you see a lot of those old time acts like Skelton and Hackett and, you know, all those great acts. Yeah. Well, so is it. Is it the style? Is it the beginning? What was it attracted you to that era? I think growing up as a kid, I um, what'd you watch when you when you grow up? I watched everything. I watched was was either Abbott and Costello, Martin and Lewis. It was um, James Lewis. Bond. It was the it was the 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 Sean Connery James Bond. Right. It was um, you know um, just Bogart, Cagney, all these films. Everybody was always in suits, cocktails, cigarettes, cigars, women. Music, jazz in the background, you know, a, sh a floor show. It was always, I was just attracted to that as a little kid. And, and I said, oh, that's, I just became that, you know, as I, when I first started doing comedy, I, I wasn't like that. You know, I was like anybody else starting out. You do what you do. And then 
my, my best friend and manager, Mark Lund, who was a former comedy partner of mine uh, years ago, uh, said to me, you know, why don't you, why don't you go on stage with a suit? That's, that's how you are. That's your style. You know, suit, you got the pinky ring, the fedora. Why don't you, why don't you try that and see if that fits your act? And then I started performing um, like that and it became my staple. Like if I go on stage now in jeans and a sport coat, somebody always say to me, where's the suit? How can we have the suit? And I'm like, ah, you know, it's raining out. It's casual or it's 90 degrees out. I didn't want to put the suit on, you know? Yeah, it's true because I saw pictures of you at, um, you did the uh, the Ray Goots backyard show. Which, yeah, that was an outdoor show, so yeah. you know I wasn't gonna wear a suit to the guy's backyard. No, no, but but it's it's weird seeing you like on on on. I, I'm gonna use quotation things, which I never do. You know, stage. You know, without a suit. I mean, every time I've seen you, a suit. You know, always you always have like that I mean, that I'll, swag. I'll be casual. I'll dress down. I'll do like you know sweater, sport coat, McCabe hat, like that. Sometimes when I'm in the city, bouncing around, I don't, won't always have the the full suit and tie on. But I'll always be at the bare minimum. I'll perform very snappy casual. Even if it's casual, it'll be smart casual. You know, I'll never go up there with just a t-shirt on and sneakers. You know. When you first started, did did you start out in the city? Because I don't. I, I'm I'm in the city a lot. I don't really run into you there. Um, I see you. You know, you're a lot, a lot of Long Island, and you're you're right. on the road a lot. Right. I um I started in the first one of the first clubs I started that was Governors of Long Island. But then in the city, I would do the early show at the Comedy Cellar. So on Fridays and Saturdays, they would have like a seven o'clock show or a six sure. o'clock show or something like that. You had to bring five people like everybody knows in the beginning when you start out. And I used to do that show a lot. I used to do um, a lot of stand up New York. Um, I used to do um, up until it just got sold. I used to do Dangerfield. Um, and then I became more um, in love with like, Gotham. I liked Gotham. Um, the Mazzilli, uh, Chris Mazzilli, who owns it, always was good to me. Uh, and so he would give me spots here and there. And I had a lot of friends like Harris Bloom and guys like that that would write, that would run shows there. And they would always throw me on. So, um, but my, but I really cut my teeth probably in the Long Island clubs. In the very beginning, um, I was strictly, uh, once I would do the city spots here and there, I was mainly three nights a week, you'd see me at Governor's or the Brokerage or McGuire's or any of the open mics that used to be on Long Island. There used to be a great sh- a Wednesday night show at 11 p.m. at Christopher's in Huntington, Long Island. Peter Bales ran it. Um, he's Long Island ledger. They call him the, the professor, of, professor of comedy. Um, he used to run it. And it was great. Wednesday night. Wednesday night, 11 o'clock. And the place would be packed. It would be packed. It was all college kids. And it was great because you could try out anything you wanted, you know, and see what what floats, you know. Yeah, it's great to have the like that weekend vibe in the middle of the week. Yeah, that, it was that's, great, and it was right? always good. You know, it was always a good crowd. Yeah, how does your style, the, you know, your throwback style, resonate like with today's millennial ty- uh, types that come out? I mean, I don't think it really makes a difference as long as you're funny. Like, you know, my retro style is really an appearance. If you listen to my act and you hear how I talk, I kind of, I kind of like there's jokes. But it's not strictly set up joke. It's a little bit of story form, a little bit of quick hits. So it, it flows naturally, I think, where it doesn't it doesn't come off like, oh, here's joke number one. Here's joke number two. It just you don't look at it like that. So I performed. I just did a show um, a couple of months ago uh, here and there. We're doing shows now. Right. And I was performing. And the second audience, it was a, it was a two show night. And the second crowd was the oldest person in the crowd was like 45. Everybody else was like 20s and 30 and not even married. And you know what? They they were just as good. You know, I did just as well with them. Like as a performer, you look at that second crowd that's super young and you go, oh crap, like they're, I'm going to hate them. They're going to hate me. And I, I never get that. Like I've been lucky. You know, I, I come off just as strong with them as I do with a crowd that's 45 to 85, you know? I got to tell you, I'm I'm working probably about four nights a week now. And I've noticed that the people that are coming out are doing younger. Doing stand-up? Yeah. <laughs> I'm doing like four shows a year now. <laughs> yeah, but it, it, what's coming out is young people, you know? It, yeah, it's because like, they're the only ones not afraid. You know? The only ones not afraid is right, right. And it's like before COVID, I was doing a lot of like uh, fundraisers and, you know, uh, uh, various groups, uh, um uh, what they comedy nights, you know, you know, you know right. an association would have a comedy night or these 55 and older communities and things like that. And they, they were great shows. And like those have completely dried up. And then like, now I'm just doing like, you know, the stuff that uh, like, you know, the things that raise and then just 
a lot of rooftop and patio type shows and shows right. on the tents. And it's it's really like 35 and under that that are coming out right. to these shows. Right. Like at Ray at Ray Goose's show in Astoria, that was that was nobody over the age of I would say 35 at that show. And um exactly. And I've done a few, like I said, I've done a few uh fundraisers uh, during this pandemic and they've been uh like golf events country clubs all set up outside with tents and 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 stuff so but now that it's getting colder i don't know what's the winter's going to be tough you know um unless uh we get this vaccine going but i don't think that's even going to really kick in until probably the end of the spring at the earliest i think for, you're right about that for the population to feel safe you know have you have you been doing any of the uh zoom shows i have done a few zoom shows i did more of them over the summer um, I, I have a few people still asking me to do some, but for the most part, I don't love them. Um, and I got a pretty cool setup, not this, this chintzy setup I'm doing here for your show with my phone, but, uh, I actually, my, um, my sister-in-law and her boyfriend have a great setup. Uh, he's, he's really, um, uh, like equipment savvy, you know, technical savvy. He's got a camera. He's got like three monitors going so I could see the Zoom audience. I could see a monitor of myself. He's got the curtains. He's got like a little comedy club in his living room at their apartment. So uh, when I do a Zoom show, I do it professionally at his place. But, you know, it's okay. it's It's a quick fix. But, you know, personally, you know, you don't get paid as much as you would do at a live show. And it's not a live show. You know, like you you want to be in front of that crowd. You want to smell the theater. You want to smell the comedy club, you know? The best, the best paid gigs I've gotten during COVID have been Zoom show fundraisers. That I mean, and a couple of corporates. That's it. Um, you know, I want to ask you, Chris, what you do before comedy? Before comedy, my last, well, out of, I started in 1998. So I was, um, I'm trying to think, 25. I was just about 25, 26 when I started. Did you always and- want to do it? Since I was like seven, I knew I wanted to be a comedian. So you, you did you did you go to college? I didn't go to college. I went to work, but I didn't get into show business right away because my parents were against it. They mm. were like, "No," when I, especially when I was a teenager. No, like, we don't want you. We don't want to be show business parents. We don't want to, you know, just don't do that. Whatever. So they they you know they would always say, "Oh, all these kids in show business are on drugs," and you know that's what was their mindset of it because all they saw was. But the, it was always nipping at you, right? Always. I always knew I want to do it. And I hated every job I had. Um, I worked in a liquor store. I worked for a plumbing company. I worked for my friend's construction company. I've done you know, a million jobs. I worked for my friend's landscaping company. And then I had a job. The last job I held before I quit to be a full-time comedian uh, was I worked for Nextel. I don't know if I'm a Nextel. That was the cell phone with the walkie-talkie. Oh, sure. Yes. Back in the late 80s. Yes. Uh, so I worked in, I used to fix phones and I used to put up towers and antennas on, on roofs for people. So uh, I worked there and I got that job in, I think I got that job in 2000 and I quit in 2003. December 23rd, 2003 was the last time I cl- I punched the clock and I've been doing stand up as a solo career ever since and acting. Well, that's what I was just going to be about to get to. Uh, you were in uh, Paul Blart, uh, Mall Cop. Uh, you also, I, I saw you in that, but uh, I also saw you in um, uh, Kevin Can Wait. And yeah. I, th- I think you're, I think you're a really good actor. Oh, uh, thank you. Yeah, what got you into acting? Do you enjoy it? Yeah, I mean, I've always wanted to have both. I've always wanted to be an actor and a comedian. You know, I, I, I once I was able to uh, become a comedian full time. It allowed me my days off. So my days I could spend, you know, looking for an agent, getting an auditioning. Cause like, you know, you, you gotta go and, and do auditions during the day when, when it's, it's, part, it's like a work, you know, it's like a job. So, um, when I had, um, I actually booked, I actually booked a, an acting job while I was still working a day job. I called my boss and said, I made up some excuse. Like I, I kind of going to be late today for something. Meanwhile, I had to go and do an audition. And then I came back to the job. I worked in Queens. And uh, I I got the part, and then right before I quit, you remember my job, what it was for? It was yeah, a PC Richards commercial. Okay, <laughs> you could still you could still it's probably on on YouTube, uh, but uh, I did this PC Richards commercial, and I'm just about now about two or three weeks. I'm going to tell my boss now. This is 2003 when I get the commercial, and I'm about to tell my boss. I'm giving you two weeks notice because I'm going to pursue my, my career. But when I was a comedian and an actor 
I never told my job I was a comedian and an actor. So they never knew that I was moonlighting, you know, because I didn't want to get fired because they figured I wasn't dedicated to the company. So a couple of coworkers happened to come to comedy club some nights and they saw me and they were like, holy crap, like we, we didn't know you were a comedian. Like you're so funny. And I was like, yeah, don't tell anybody at work because I'm keeping it a secret. So about a week or two before I'm about to get my two weeks notice, my boss comes in and a great guy, my boss. I still talk to my ex. I still talk to him. He's another Queens guy, but he comes in and he goes, I saw you on a commercial last night. And I go, no, I wasn't me. I wasn't on a commercial. He goes, yes, it was a PC Richards commercial. And in the commercial, I play a comedian. And he goes, you were telling jokes. And it's in, and it was a PC Richards commercial. And I said, it's you. I, I, and I, I, I fell off the couch and I said, I said, Julio, I, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. It looked like me. He's like, come on, man. And so I just didn't admit it was me. And then when I went in two weeks later to tell him I'm going to give my two weeks notice, I said it was me. I lied to you. It was me that I was in that commercial. I said the reason I'm leaving is because I'm, I'm going to be in show business. And now I have a lot of bookings and I have, you know, I have money saved and I can take my shot. And I said, and he begged me not to quit. He wanted to give me a raise and he wanted to make me a manager. And I said, the last thing I want is more responsibility to this place because you cannot exceed or succeed in anything if you're giving 40 hours plus a week to somebody else. If you want your business to take off, you have to give that time to yourself to grow your business. And that's what I did. Oh, exactly. Listen, I, I identify with everything you're saying. Um, yeah, I, I do uh, quite a bit of acting myself. Right. Um, I was in... Um, I did Scorsese's The Irishman. Um, right. I, have a, I have a movie that's out now called uh, Saint of the Impossible. I just filmed the movie uh, last week. Um, and it, it, you know, it, it is it, it is a full time job. You know, um, now do you find like um, you're doing more home auditions? Right. Yeah. Now everything is from home. Everything is self-taped, which is fine, because when you self-tape, you have more times to get the take the way you want it, you know. And but I, I, you know, I don't know about that because, you know, as much as we we want it to be perfect, sometimes when you go in and you're in the room and the, you know, the, the casting director is there and the people are there, I feel like you give a better performance when you're getting direction straight from the casting that, director. Right. Well, well, that's the thing. I think, you know, I think what makes a good actor as well is being able to take direction and right. doing it on your own. When you're not 100% sure what they're kind of looking for, you know, what the backstory thing is. And I think it kind of really helps you in your audition. Right. I mean, I've been doing self-tape. I haven't booked one thing. And I'm, I did so it's horrible. And I almost booked something. Actually, I almost booked a commercial back in like June. And my wife was like filming it for me. And um, it came so close. And then, but here's how you know you don't got it. I don't know. As, as a fellow actor, you'll get this. And anybody watching out there who's in show business uh, is when, when you make them laugh and they love you. And so I, the, I do the audition and I do it like three ways. And every one, every way they, the director tells me to do it, I'm killing it. And they love, they're laughing and they whatever. So we hang up and my wife goes, Oh my God, that was amazing. I think you're going to get this. I go, I ain't getting that. She's like, they loved you. I go, anytime they love you, you're not getting it. <laughs> I go, when they, when they don't react, so is when you get it. It's, it, oh God. it's I don't know what it is, but it's so true. It is, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Either. I remember one time I went in and I read for a part and the producer walks me to the, um, to the elevator after he's like, he's like, man, he goes, you killed it. He goes, he's like, we've seen people, you killed it. And then I, the next day I was driving to Maryland. I was doing, uh, do you remember, you know, Johnny uh, Watson? Sure. I know Johnny very yeah. well. Remember Johnny had that, that place down in ocean city. Yep. Okay. I did that so, place. That was a uh, secrets, right? There was secrets, but he also had the uh, uh, Plaza Royale or something like that. Oh, I did secrets. That was the one night. Okay. It was like a Wednesday night. You drove yeah. down for one night. Yeah, I think I, I think I, I think I went up one night um, at, at that place. I made a joke about secrets because that was like the big place that people went. I think the secret is you don't get syphilis. I think I think that's yeah. what because you know, it was like such a, like a. <laughs> but uh, I'm driving down and with my my wife because you know I was doing a couple of nights there, so you know we took a, we took a room in Ocean City and like my wife and my my son they were going to go and do the beach and everything. I was going to do the shows, so we make a little vacation out of it, and. Uh, my agency calls me up. And they said, look, they're going to pass on you on, on this one part, but would you be interested in another part in that film? They're interested. I'm like, yeah, of course I'm, I'm working. Right. They called, they called me back 15 minutes. Yeah. They're going to pass on you on that one too. Uh, like what the fuck? I you know. know. 
Um, I know I did. I did a part on Red Oaks on on um, on Amazon Prime with uh, Paul Reiser, and then uh, I just play a guy in the clubhouse. It was a country club show about a country club, and uh, then after after the second season, at the end of the second season, I get a phone call from my agent. Hey, the producers from um, Red Oaks called me. The casting director from Red Oaks just called me. They want to bring you back as a recurring guy in the next season. Beautiful. Uh, and I'm like, oh, this is like the, and it films in New Excellent. York. I'm like, this is what I've been waiting for. And then that's what happens after season two. The, the show got canceled. canceled. <laughs> uh, listen, I've been there. I've been there. I, I was up for, for, um, to, to do something. Remember the show, the, uh, uh, what was it called? The Deuce. The oh Deuce. yeah. I went out for many parts on that show. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, and I, was, I felt I was pretty close and yeah, they canceled it. Um, hey, how did you get to come to know uh, Kevin James? I did a roast for the legend of Long Island comedy. The godfather of Long Island comedy is Richie Minabini. And today is actually sure. his birthday, I believe, too. Um, he was turned 60 a few years back and they asked me, Richie wants you on the dais for his roast. And we did it out in Long Island at a big at a big huge um like a restaurant that had a big back room and it was they set up a stage it was like it could hold like 300 people and we did it and so two people were in the audience that night that i actually again hung out with and became friends with um and i could i'm gonna only mention this other guy because i see that jersey hanging on your wall back there but one of my one of my heroes and idols clark gillies because oh, i'm a big, love, I'm a big yeah. Idol. i'm an yeah. fan. So. Clark Gillies was in the audience and Kevin James and Kevin James was with his wife. And so I go up, uh, they had so many people that were roasting that night that they did an intermission. They did a, a set of dais with like 10 guys on the dais and then an intermission. And then we all came off the dais and another 10 comedians and friends oh, wow. went up and did the afternoon. It was a long night, but I was in the, thank God I was in the first group and I went like fifth. So it was perfect. perfect. You know, the show was fresh. Everybody was only doing five minutes, four minutes. No and I killed. I, yeah, I had a great set. I come off and I go down to get a drink and I'm sitting there and Kevin James come up to me and he's like, hey, man, you were really good. My wife loved you. And she's like, hi, you know, I'm, uh, I forget her name now, but she she introduced herself and they were so nice. And they were sitting right at the table next to us. And so um, he he saw me there and then not even, I don't know, a month later, he calls me and uh and asks me to be in a movie wow great story yeah yeah, yeah you, there is something about you You're, you are a charming bastard you uh, are even you know because even i remember even um i'm a good bullshit rivers show uh my wife was like you know that guy was really funny she she really enjoyed you too um hey, tell us about um everything old is new again well, actually, we revamped the show to the Monty and Walker show because, believe it or not, there's somebody out there that has a radio show that's also a podcast and it's on YouTube called Everything Old is New Again. And this person threatened to sue Rich Walker and I, my partner in the show, because we use the name Everything Old is New Again, which we said Everything Old is New Again is I can't think of the name of the singer now. This is a band show. I should know it. Um, it's a song from the seventies. Everything old is new again. And the guy who sung it and wrote it has passed away since, but we said, that's a song. So if you're going to sue us, then whoever owns the right to the song can sue you for using a name. And it became this whole thing. And the guy kept threatening us and threatening us. And we were like, sue us. Well, we don't have any money. What are you going to take? You know, the show hasn't generated one viral video. So did, did he uh, copyright it? Trademark he, it? He couldn't copyright it. He said he leased the name. He could say he that. The that right legal. So anyway, we now we've dropped the name and we've changed it to um, uh, the Monty Walker Show. But uh, so that's just basically it's it's quick sketches of we act out some original sketches and it's predominantly joke jokes. It's street jokes. Two guys walk into a bar. A guy goes into the church. A guy you know cheats on his wife and gets caught. Just jokes like that we act out in that show and it's quick you know, 60 seconds, two to three minutes tops per episode for three sketches. Sometimes the sketches are 30 seconds, sometimes they're a minute, and that's it. And um, right now we're on hiatus from that because everything that's going on, everybody's a little leery about getting in the studio because it's very tight quarters. And, um, and but we, we have uh, we have about a couple dozen of them out there on YouTube. If you go to Monty, MontyandWalkerProductions.com, M-O-N-T-Y, MontyandWalkerProductions.com, you can see all of our videos. 
Well, let's talk about something that people can't see. And I know you have, uh, I remember you were promoting this. You have a comedy special out called The Worst That Could Happen. And it's on Amazon. Right. Yeah. Um, Where did you film it? And is that, was that your first special? That was my first special. It was self-produced. We shot it at Malloy College, uh, the Madison Theater at Malloy College, which is in Rockville Center on Long Island. It's not far from, it's maybe like, 15 minutes from the Queens borderline. It's like right in uh, Western Nassau County. Um, we shot that there. It was 500 seats. Um, well, now it's a little dated. I mean, it's a great special if it's still up there. So I urge people to check it out because uh, it is funny. Uh, it's pre, uh, it's when I just had gotten married, but it's pre fatherhood. So now actually my act has changed, as you know, like we write about life. But, um, but yeah, it's about 52 minutes long. We shot it uh, at, uh, at Malloy College and 2017 we shot it and um it was a great night it was a great night we actually got everything and we were going to do two shows we actually got had such a good show that we were like you know what wow. we don't need we don't need to set up a second show uh because this one was was that good and um and it was a great night and it's still you know it's still uh it's still getting a lot of hits so I'm grateful good i hope our people uh, go out and check it out uh Really funny comedian, man. Um, so let's talk about your music. Let's talk about your band. And you you picked you gave me three artists, and the first one was Ella Fitzgerald. And I'm like, man, it's like we haven't had anyone on the show talk about any of these artists, which is surprising. But Ella Fitzgerald, I didn't think we would ever talk about Ella Fitzgerald on this show. And then I started going down the wormhole, and I didn't realize how deep her catalog is. Oh my god. Amazing. She, I always say this, um, this is a phrase that my friend Joe Starr, fellow comedian, and I always use about Ella. We say, as far as vocalist and singing, there's Ella Fitzgerald, there's a big gap, and then there's everybody else. It starts way down underneath her because she was, um, she could sing a ballad, she could swing a jazz song, she could scat, um, she could make you cry, she can make you swing, and she just had it all. And she's she she sang with everybody, she sang with all the, the big um band leaders of her day. Um, she sang, I mean, you you can go into the 70s and see she sang disco, she tried everything, like she didn't just sing um jazz and and American standards. She she tried singing rock and roll, she tried singing, you know, which I prefer her in her, you know, in her element for me is when she's singing jazz, when she's scatting and when she's Swinging, um, her with Count Basie, her with Chick Webb, her with Duke Ellington, some of the greatest recordings, you know, of all time. Yeah. Um, a couple of songs stood out to me from, from her. Um, I always thought this was, I always thought Mama Cass had done Dream a Little Dream. That was like, but I didn't realize it was Ella Fitzgerald and she kills that song. It's great. And I loved her version of Bewitched bothered and bewildered. And bewildered. Yep. And that's the long one, right? Was that like the six minute version or the seven minute version? It, yeah. It, it, it was kind of a long, long version. Long right? um, yeah. There was a couple of other songs, but those two really stood out to me as like really great, great versions of those. Yeah. Songs. See, I'm glad that I was able, and I don't know if you ever had, you know, delved into her before, but now maybe I no. made a new fan of Ella. So you can listen. She's yeah, but she, she's those are two great songs, two great songs. Um, she swings a version. If you ever want to get into Ella, uh, my favorite, one of my favorite live albums is Ella live in Berlin. And I did see something uh, on that. I did watch it. Go ahead. What were you going to say? It's a famous, it's a famous concert uh, and album because she, uh, at the time, Mac the knife was the big hit in the country, uh, in America, um, as sung by Bobby Darren and Louis Armstrong had made a version of it and they both became big hits. Bobby Darren's was the top of the charts. And then Louis Armstrong had did a cover of it and he became, uh, you know, on the charts with it. And then Ella decides I'm going to sing Mac the knife, but during the song forgets half the words to the song and, but scats her way through it. And it's just like a, it's like one of my favorite versions of that song now. Yeah, she, she had a couple. She um, she did like you know. Did you know the version of the song uh, "Summertime"? Yes. Yeah, haunting, isn't it? Very haunting. Yes. Yeah, I mean, she like it's interesting because the next artist we're going to talk about was Sinatra, and mm-hmm. I kind of like while listening to Ella Fitzgerald made me think this is the female Sinatra because you know Sinatra could take a song 
and tell a story in the song. Like for an example, the song, there are two songs that stood out night and day and mm-hmm. the contrast between night and day. And when he's right. singing about it, you know, you, you, you could, he, he's, he's emoting the emotion in his voice. I think Ella Fitzgerald does that in summertime. Yeah. And she does a version of night and day too. Uh, so, but yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, both of them sang with emotion, both of them sang with feeling. And that's what makes, you know, to me, like a great singer, you know, and believe me, there's, there's other great singers that like my wife, you managed Karen Carpenter, right? Or did you manage, she, mention, mention Karen Carpenter? I know Ella sang with Karen Carpenter. Said, yeah. I, that was when I was down the wormhole. I watched yeah. that video too. My wife loves Karen Carpenter. I think, great artist. Um, yeah, I think one of the most beautiful voices of all time. I have Agreed. to say, I put Agreed. Karen Carpenter in the top five of the most beautiful voices of all time. She could have been, you know, unfortunately uh, for her health and everything she had going on with her. But, um, but yeah, but Ella sang with her and she sang and th- they sang with feeling and they sang with emotion. And that's what makes, you know, that's what makes to me, makes a ballad singer the best ballad singers, you know. But then, like you also said, she could she could change it up, and she, uh, she performed with uh, Louis Armstrong, and she did uh, cheek to cheek, and it's up, and it's jazzy, and it's yep. you know it it's completely different. I was very impressed. She also did um, a full uh, a full version of Somewhere Over the Rainbow, where mm-hmm. that that opening verse that you never hear. Right. Right. Uh, yeah, I think a lot of people know that. Just like a lot of people don't know um, the opening verse to uh, "America the Beautiful." Yes. So if you ever listen to Ray Charles's version of it, he sings the first verse of it, and then he sings the one we all know. You know. And then, so then, the next artist you want to talk about was Sinatra. What is it about Sinatra that you love? I just everything. What what's not to love? You know, the ups, the downs, the swinging, the attitude. The you know, that's what they used to call me. They used to call me the, the my friends in the business school used to call me the Frank Sinatra of comedy because I always would come in with the suit and the hat. You know, have the have the scotch on the rocks, um, the Jack Daniels. Um, Sinatra's the same thing as I love about Ella. It's the same thing. It's like it's so personal to listen to Sinatra. Whatever you're going through you feel it, you know, you, you, if you're feeling sad, you put on some Sinatra sad songs and it's like, wow, it, it comes, that motion comes right through the speaker. Same thing with something swinging, you know, when you want to have a good time, boom, Sinatra's having a good time. You put on one of his swinging albums. So, um, I loved everything about him. I loved the style. Like I said, the Rat Pack, the company he kept, I'm a huge Dean Martin fan. Me too. Um, some would say I'm a bigger Dean Martin fan than Sinatra fan, but, um, I would say I love them the same. Sammy Davis, that whole crew, that whole style, just the, the elegance of the suits and the, and the cocktail. It was always like the, the, you know, jazz, the suit, the cocktail, the hat, the women, the cigarette. It was just so cool. So I was drawn to it even as a kid, you know. I just thought they were the coolest guys on the planet. There's a couple of cool Sinatra stories. Are you familiar with the one when uh, how Sammy lost his eye? The so- story or the song? The, the, uh, the story. Sam, yeah, yeah. He lost his eye in a car accident. Right. And he stayed at Sinatra's house and Sinatra was the one, you know, took care of him, you know, and brought him around. And That's if, right. if, right, yeah. if you weren't in, you know, if, if you discriminated against Sammy, you were out, you know. Yeah. They told uh, Sammy that uh, back in the 60s, in the early 60s, when they were all touring together, they had said to Sammy that he couldn't stay at one of the hotels because they don't let black people stay. And Sinatra said that none of us are performing there. And they said, okay, we'll get a room for Mr. Davis. So what are your favorite Sinatra songs? Oh, so many. Um, Give me three. Three. Um, I love um, All or Nothing at All. Okay. Um, I, I don't want to pick out the standards that they had everybody. Like, that's one of the standards, but I like, I try not to pick out the ones that everybody like. I'll give you the one song I don't like by Sinatra. Not that it's him. I just don't like the song. I'm so sick of it. New York, New York. I hate that song. Same here. Same I here. prefer other New York songs <laughs> to, to that one. You know, like for me, if I had to pick a modern day favorite New York song, it would be um, uh, Billy Joel, uh, New York State of Mind. Okay. You know, um, yeah. but... But um, I like so, the other one, the uh, the Billy Joel song that I saw the lights go down on Broadway. Uh huh, that's another good one. Yeah, yeah. But Sinatra, all or nothing at all. Um, I love. Um, I always love. I think one of the songs that made me a Sinatra fan was um, Witchcraft. 
when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. I mean, listen, he's telling a story in that one too. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, I loved witchcraft and Sinatra also does a version of a song that you mentioned by Ella, and I love both Ella and Frank's parallel equally. Bewitched, bothered, and bewildered. Sinatra does a great version of that song too. You know, when I was going down uh, and, and checking all this out, you know, like how some guys try to be cool. Sinatra was was cool, and they did uh, Ella and Sinatra did a version of um, "The Lady Is a Tramp," and Ella mm-hmm. starts it off. And then Sinatra uh, comes in with his verse, and he's you know, and he's just on stage, just being Sinatra, and right. he, just, you know, just, he just got like that style. And then he kicks it in, and it's like you just heard this legend sing because it's a little, uh, you know, uh, uh, into their careers already, right? And he he's doing it, and it's just like, man, this guy may be in his fifties at the time, late fifties, and he just is so still freaking cool. He's got the tuxedo on, he's got yeah. his you know, cigarette. It's just, yo, come on, man. Like that, that's a, that's an era I wish we can bring back. Oh yeah. It's definitely gone. Uh, but it's, there's a lot of guys that still try to live it, you know, like me and uh, guys like Michael Buble. He's, he's, he's people say, Oh, he copies. I go, yeah, but he, he appreciates that old style. So that's why he likes that music and he does a good job at it, you know, cause he loves it. You can tell he's passionate about it. Agreed. And, and that's a, that's the thing I, I like. I like, um, did you know, like Sinatra did, does off fly me to the moon. And yeah. do you know who the arranger was on that album, on that song? Um, I should. Tell me. A very, very young, just getting started in his career, Quincy, Quincy? Jones. I was going to say, I, that was my yeah. guess, Quincy, because Quincy, he arranged a lot for um, for Sinatra, for Sammy, for he worked with the Count Basie Orchestra. He was he was a big jazz guy before he you know had switched over. He he had done so much Quincy Jones before he started producing the stuff we know him for, which is like the Michael Jackson era and the you know all the pop charts of the eighties. But he was a big jazz guy. I actually have a um a DVD of a concert from nineteen sixty five. It was a fundraiser for Dismas House helping um sick children. It was Frank Dean and Sammy. And um, Joey Bishop couldn't be there. So Johnny Carson was the comedian that opens the show. Oh, my God. And in the back on stage, you have the Count Basie Orchestra. You have Dean Martin's band and Frank Sinatra's. And Quincy Jones is conducting all bands on that. And he's a young Quincy Jones, 1965. So it's in black and white, but it's a great it's a great concert. I, I, I got to tell you, talking about this really, you know, makes me nostalgic for that era. I, I you know, I, I'm going to definitely go back and, and watch some of that other stuff. Um, and then we, uh, the other band that you want to talk about, you know, you, you pick probably. Well, it, rock and roll. I don't want to, I'm not a one trick pony. I, I mean, like I listen to, my wife will tell you I am because I listen to a lot of jazz and blues constantly because I love the blues as well. But, um, but I like rock and roll. I like, you know, hip hop. I like, you know, pop. I like all kinds of stuff. So, um, but when I was a kid, I was into rock and roll as well. And I got into, I got more into the new wave bands as I became a high school kid. I got into the Depeche Modes and the Pet Shop Boys and that stuff. But Love as a little stuff. kid, because the Islanders were winning Stanley Cups when I was a kid, right? Uh, I was turned on to We Will Rock You and We Are the Champions, which were on the flip side of the 45. One side was, you know, We Will Rock You, one side was We Are the Champions. And I got into Queen because of that, because of those two songs. <laughs> And then I started, you know, listening to, you know, more Queen. And and um, and by the way, if you haven't seen the film that came out uh, about uh, Queen, uh, that was just oh, Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah, of yeah. Fantastic. yeah, I'm just thinking. I'm just, I'm just trying to think when uh, that came out. The, the, those those songs came out. Uh, we are the champions. We will rock. You came out in seventy seventy seven. It was yeah. off of, it was off of News of the World, and, and so the Islanders were winning cups. From 79 to 83. Right. So, yeah. So it's already out at at, at that time. Right, right. Right, right. And they would play them. You know, they would play We Will Rock You at the Islander game. So my brother and I, you know, walked up to the record shop one day when we were little kids and we bought that record. And then I started, like, listening to Queen. You know, Fat Bottom Girls is one of my favorite songs. (laughs) Well, for jazz. You know. I, I saw that tour. So, yeah, so I started listening to Queen. So uh, I got into them. I got into, I was into, you know, everybody, you know, pretty much in the in the 70s and 80s, I got into, I've seen the um, the Allman Brothers Band a few times. I got oh, into, great. 
you know, I got into um, soft rock too, like James Taylor and stuff like that. But I got into like Rolling Stones, all the all the big bands, you know, um, Rolling Stones. Um, I was into um, the Police. I was into all all kinds of groups, and I still I still listen to it. I still have all different playlists set on my uh, Spotify account. Yeah, I'm, I'm missing Sean Morton being here because we we always work this into the to the show. Um, yeah, I, for for years that's that's what I did for about 19 years. I toured with bands and I did four tours with the Stones. So uh, yeah, so that uh, when it comes to the Stones, man, they they are also one of my greats. But let's talk about um, Queen for a second. And I think they probably have. This could probably be one one of the top ten albums of all time. Would you say Night at the Opera? Oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with you. I mean, the opening song "Death on Two Legs" is is a song that it, it's not even the top three songs of that album. And right. if you put it in somebody else's catalog, it's probably their encore. Uh, right. Yeah, I mean, Bohemian Rhapsody, Love of My Life, uh, You're My Best Friend. I mean, all these songs are on that same album. And then before you even start thinking about uh, songs like 39, which just get kind of like thrown out, you know? Right. And it's such a great, great album. It's such an amazing band. It's so funny because you should do a show. You probably have done a show like this, but I say you should take shows like that. Take a, the 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 subject of albums that one song was better than the next, and like every song is a hit. Like you know, you look at Thriller. Every song on that album became huge. Like there's so <laughs> many different albums the whole time. You know, the only the only other song, the only song on Thriller that you could say that is probably not the biggest hit was. Uh, uh, Baby Be Mine or whatever, or whatever that song was, or, or that one song. But like, same thing with with the Queen album. Um, it's it's amazing, you know. Like, it's definitely my favorite album of their albums. Yeah, my mine too. Uh, but you know what? I like uh, I like News of the World as well because um, I, I loved um, Spread Your Wings. I think that's like mm-hmm. such a an amazing song. Then you mentioned jazz, you know, because you said you like Fat Bottom Girls, and you remember the song uh, Don't Stop Me Now. Yep. I mean, it's, it's great. It's such a great piano riff on, on, on that. Um, it was so like, you know, what I like about it was they weren't just a strict, like hard rock band, you know, they were everything all at once. They could be, you know, they were, they, they, you know, I don't know. I think they're one of the greatest bands of all time, but there's so many, you know, I don't want to, you know, just say that they're the greatest because, you know, you look at, if you well, look at America, subjective, it's so hard and it's all opinions. Everybody has their own favorites and stuff. I just think this is a band that is so undeniable. They didn't have, you know, you look at like, um, like Led Zeppelin, who I, another band I love. Love me too. Love them. Um, Who was it? Uh, uh, Dustin Chafin was telling me he was driving, you know, to uh, out to Columbus for a show. And he just decided to like, listen to all Zeppelin albums. And he's like, he goes, they're all good except for this one, which was presence. If you did that with queen, I don't think you're finding a dud in in, in right. starting with their first album. And even up to their last album, which was Innuendo in 91, you still had like the, the monster hit now, um, The Show Must Go On, which still right. holds up. Right. I agree with you 100% on that. You could find duds in a lot of other bands probably, but not. Not with them. Not many. You might find one or two songs you don't particularly love. Of but, course. You know, with any, with any band you're going to find that or any any artist, you know? Yeah, I like the diversity uh, that they would even show um, in albums. Like, um, I think a perfect example would be on the album The Game. Um, they would do something a little little different, like crazy little thing called Love. And another one, Bites the Dust, which was kind of like a disco-y song. Right, very disco Right, but then you would have songs like Dragon Attack, and then a pop song like uh, Play the Game. Right. It's so, just very, I mean, it, yeah, you're in for a ride. You're not just getting the same old feeling, you know, from every song. It's like, what the hell's this, you know? <laughs> they're, listen, your your musical taste is is right along with mine, man. You really, I mean, I love that you turned me on to Ella Fitzgerald, though. Thank you. That, I'm glad I can make a fan. The only music I don't love and my wife loves is country. I don't hate country, but I don't love all country. Um if Bob I do Brooks. listen to country music, if, if I'm a country music listener, it's it's the old school um, Hank Williams Sr., you know, Patsy Cline. Um, I love Kenny Rogers. You know, I can't He's say I don't great. love Kenny. Who Amazing. doesn't love Kenny? 
you know, you have a few drinks and you got to sing along to the gambler and Lucille and all, all, all those songs, you know? Agreed. No, I, I am a big country fan. And the reason for that is uh, my wife is a, a veterinarian. And when she went to vet school, she went to Mississippi State. Now, okay. Okay, now my wife is Brooklyn Italian. And she's now going to Stockville, Mississippi. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> So she is the ultimate fish out of water. So, oh, so, so, so she couldn't. She's a northerner. <laughs> She yeah. has a vowel at the end of her last name. She's an Italian you know? Yank. <laughs> Everyone's you say your father, you know, he's in the mafia, you know. It, you know every, it, it's every stereotype you could think of. It's my cousin Vinny. So she got she had to like fit in somehow. And she wound up getting into Goth Brooks and George Strait. And that kind of like, you know, and plus my dad was a big country fan. He uh he still is. He's um huge Johnny Cash guy. Yeah, I like. I gotta say, I like Johnny Cash. I like some of that stuff. Like some of the old stuff, I I, I can tolerate. I like, but some. I'm just not. Not that there's anything wrong with the artist. I don't want to bash anybody. I'm just saying I, it's not my cup of tea. You know. I got you, Chris. What what's going? What's uh? What's coming up next? What do you What do you got going on? We're hoping that we get this vaccine so we can get really back out there. The schedule's kind of really light right now because of what's going on so we're working on um rich and i are working on trying to figure out a, a time to start shooting our little short sketches again the, the monty walker productions and other than that i'm just um i'm just putting together some shows for for 2021 when everything hopefully goes back to normal and auditioning right now everything's pretty much just like we're on hiatus right now until the world goes back to normal so um i can't really say i'm gonna i'm gonna start up a weekly um, YouTube and Facebook and Instagram. It's going to be maybe 60 seconds long. It's just going to be called Chris Monty's Jokes and Smokes. And uh, I'm going to be telling a street joke while I have my cigar and drink my bourbon. And every week it'll be a new joke. And it'll maybe be a minute long or something like that, just to, just to keep relevant and, and put something funny out there, you know, something that people can enjoy. Guys, check out Chris Monty. Check out the special, What's the Worst That Can Happen on Amazon Prime. Chris, man, thank you so much for coming down and 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 just doing this for us. We really appreciate it. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks for keeping me relevant for another week. You are a relevant man. You're a very funny guy, very talented actor. Uh, we wish you, we wish everybody, Adam, we wish everybody a happy Thanksgiving. Be safe and take care, everybody. We'll see you next week. Bye, take Chris. Care. Thanksgiving.